0: If you have a Bible this morning, if you would turn to Matthew 21, I know that the outside of your bulletin says that we are in Ephesians today, but we are not. I actually spent much of this week in sermon preparation banging my head against the wall and getting no clarity on what I should be preaching and how to move forward. And uh, it's one of those where you just want to stick a pencil in your eye and be done with it kind of thing. I could understand it. And then my wife said, So you're preaching on Palm Sunday this this week, right? And I went, Uh. Yeah. It's good to get that from the Lord. So that's what we're going to do. And I and I do ask that you have your Bible with you. And the reason is, is because I want to be able to show you from different points in Scripture why this particular event in history is so critical of what's taking place. I thought it was funny because this this graphic that we have is is a stock graphic. The the computer program that we have that we run all of our scripture on, they have these you can freely download them and use them. And I thought it was funny Palm Sunday because we often call it Palm Sunday. The idea that the fact that they're palm branches is only mentioned in the Gospel of John, that's the only place But you see, in every one of the gospel instances, you talk about laying out the coats. I thought, why don't we just call it Coat Sunday? I thought that'd be fun. No, no, I like weird things. Whatever. In chapter 21 of Matthew, we're going to look at 11 verses. We're going to break them apart and we're going to look at their Old Testament counterparts as to why this event matters. If you would please look with me in chapter 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem, and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowd going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, All the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please grant us enlightenment and illumination to your word because of the power of the Holy Spirit we pray that we would understand our times and see the significance of a coming king and that we would recognize the importance the responsibility the joy of what it is to be announcers of his coming and we pray this in Jesus name amen for matthew 21 to 28 there's a chronology of six days' time. It's incredible that these eight chapters would cover that area. And when we read upon this, we see some things that might strike us as odd. The idea that he would need a donkey or a colt in order to come into the city. Why didn't he just walk in? Why was it significant for him to have a place outside of it? What exactly is everybody doing? They would kind of had this... Uh, fanatical, he is a first century David Copperfield kind of approach. Please heal this, please do that, please provide this. Taking advantage of him, almost like he was a shopping mart. And for some reason now, they're crying out a name that we might not fully understand. And they've got a sense of rejoicing. And his presence when he enters the city sets the city on fire. The word stirred there means shaken up. Anybody ever played boggle? And you know you've got 16 tiles and these little dice that are in there with letters. And your goal is to try to make words out of it. But in order for the game to operate, you've got to shake those things up and get them settled. Jerusalem was boggled by the entrance of a man named Jesus. Now here's what's incredible about this. From looking at Scripture, we know exactly the day that this took place. So if you want, write it down. Because it took place on April 6th of 32 AD. We know that for a fact from Scripture. And I think it's important to go through and maybe explain how it is in the world that we know that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. is to take a moment. And if you want to put a a leaflet here, or if you've got one of your markers from your Bible, string it in here, maybe you hold it just with your finger, but I'd like you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Turn back to the left in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, he is the fifth of the major prophets. We don't have a lot of time today to read through and explain all of this, but I want to give you just a running start in it. If you've been hanging out in Pete's Sunday school class or you've been here for a while, you're probably familiar with this passage. But it is a major prophetical marker of which we get our entire time structure of the end times and why we know for certainty that there is a seven-year tribulation in the end. Does all this have to do with Jesus entering Jerusalem? Absolutely it does. But I need to show you why. Okay? Daniel chapter 9, if for some reason you can't find it or it's eluding you, just simply look at the screen. You can find it that way. It's, it's fine. But if you find Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, it's right in there. Usually you can find Isaiah pretty easily. It's a pretty pretty major book in there. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks, and if you've got a good translation, you will have a usually a marker there that over in the margins it will tell you units of seven is what it is. It, the, the word doesn't literally mean... Weeks. The word literally means units of seven. So seventy-sevens is how we would take that. Have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. And he is revealing to him something major about the end of the world and the history of Israel. Now if he's talking to Daniel, notice that it says here, your people and your holy city. Time out for just a second. Everybody is going to put on your nerdy scholar cap. And we're going to make some decisions. Who are David? Who are Daniel's people? Jews, Israel, we know that, right? What is Daniel's holy city? You guys just interpreted prophecy. Do you realize that? Isn't that a beautiful thing? You feel accomplished today. What did you do in church today? I interpreted prophecy. Hey, speak that at the lunch table. That'll carry a good conversation. There it is. So notice, for your people and your holy city. So we're dealing with all this in the framework of the Jews and Jerusalem. Pay attention. Notice what will happen. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now these are all things I wish we could spend the time expounding on. Maybe we can do that sometime privately and that's fine. But these are all major things that point to one focal time period for Israel and the city in particular, and that is the millennial reign of Christ. These things will only be fulfilled in that time, but it is only through the event of his crucifixion by which the ability for them to be fulfilled can happen. So the prophecy is given. Here's what needs to happen in the future. The cross is the major marker of which ignites the opportunity for those things to take place. And then the situation occurs where they are actually literally fulfilled in real time on earth with the Jews. It says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that is very important. If you have a highlighter, mark it. Until, notice the time period, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, real quick for all you math people out there if you're not you're pulling out your iPhone right now and you're swiping up calculator it's okay but if we look up at the beginning of chapter 24 77s we know that's 490 of whatever that is okay if you look down in verse 25 you see that there are seven sevens and there are 62 sevens and if you add those together you come up with 483 of whatever that is. Now, I want to make it real easy for everybody. 490 minus 483 is what? Seven. Seven that is left, or one unit that is left of that. So we're speaking of 70 up before, and we're talking about 69 in the very next verse, and notice that he gives you the time frame. From a decree that's called to go out and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, That's pretty definitive. Until the time of who? Messiah. Great. Nine of you are paying attention, and that's more than I expected. That's fantastic here, okay? So notice, we have a time frame. These are bookends of when this is going to take place. But notice what he says. If we're starting for 490 that's been prophesied about your people in the city Jerusalem, only 483 of those is going to be fulfilled within that time frame. Now that's important because here's what it tells us. There's a unit of seven that is not there. Something is going to happen in order to stop time. Watch this. It says, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again. What's it? Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt with plaza. That means the interior will be complete. And moat. That means the exterior will be complete. This is a complete and total rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem that would happen. You say, well, why does that matter? Because in Daniel's time, the place was in shambles. Bricks were torn down, houses had been depleted, the temple was laid to the ground, nothing was there. And the Jews were in exile because of their rampant idolatry. It says here, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now watch this. verse. Twenty-six. Then after the 62 weeks, so the last grouping of sevens that he just talked about in verse 25, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Pay attention. The Messiah, remember the book ends, Rebuilding Jerusalem and the Messiah? When it comes to the end of that completion, and there's still a unit of seven left to go, the Messiah will be cut off and he will have nothing. Now, that doesn't sound like a good thing to say about Jesus, does it? But here's the thing. It's true. And we've got to ask the question, why? Now, why does this matter? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do is look at the screen, please. There's a book called The Coming Prince. And if you ever have the opportunity to get it, it's by a man named Sir Robert Anderson. It is well worth your time to spend a lot of your brain power in that book with your Bible in the other hand and a pen in your third hand and a notebook with your fourth hand, okay? Okay. It's very, very important because you will find that a lot of the things that seem confusing about the end times will quickly be put together. Dave, could we bring that up, please? This is Sir Robert Anderson's timeline of the entry of Jesus as king. Number one, there's an epoch of the 70 weeks that was issued as a decree to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, when did that happen? If you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for a king named Artaxerxes, and he's very distressed because some of his friends came back from Jerusalem. He said, man, this place looks like a trash heap. This is terrible. Walls are torn down. This is a mess. It's like a ghost town there. And he's distraught. Why? Because he knows that all the promises of God are tied to the land of Israel, are tied to the city of Jerusalem, and are tied to the Jews as his people who have been set aside, of which he made Covenants, contracts, promises to that were irrefutable. So he's got unceasing anguish in his heart over this situation. So he tells the king, Artaxerxes, here's the problem. Artaxerxes says, if it bothers you that bad, put together a party, take as long as you need, go back there and rebuild this thing. Take care of it. I am all for, because he was technically king over all that area anyway, I'm all for you creating a civilization there and making it better. So the decree goes out in Nehemiah chapter two. Next one, number two, there never was one decree for uh, there never was but one decree for rebuilding of Jerusalem. Many people have tried to look at others, but only Artaxerxes gives it to Nehemiah, and that's when it actually takes place to get done. Number three, the decree was issued by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of his reign, which was BC 440. Number four, the city was actually built in pursuance of that decree. In fact, if you read Nehemiah, you know that they were laying bricks with one hand and they were fighting fools with another one. Everybody remember that one? Here, build this and smack this guy. That sounds like a fun comic book. Let's do that. Number five, the Julian date of 1st Nisan 445 was the 14th of March. If we were to compare, the Jewish calendar, to what we consider our solar or lunar calendar, which actually we've added five days to God's timeline. Shame on us for doing that because it messes up our understanding of all of prophecy and we might want to rethink that whole idea. But in doing so, we could actually calculate when this took place as comparison to our days. Number six, 69 weeks of years actually equals 173,880 days. If it's reckoned from the 14th of March, B.C. 445, it ended on the 6th of April in 32 A.D. This shows the precision of God's Word. This shows that when he talks about dates, times, numbers, he's not playing. He's exact. He's perfect. And he wanted to send a message through Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in order to exactly fulfill this point on this day to the Jewish people. If they had only been thinking of their Old Testament, they would not have missed their Messiah. Number seven, that day on which the 69 weeks ended, on that day, was a faithful day on which the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, when, for the first and only occasion in all his earthly sojourn, he was acclaimed as Messiah the Prince, the King, the Son of David. See, there's more about this going on than just hanging out in children's church, taking paper, cutting palm branches, and then going home so your mom throws at the trash. There's a lot more going on there. Anybody think that's, I, I, okay, whatever. Crafts are fun like that. I don't know. People like crafts, people don't like crafts, whatever. It's okay. So with that in mind, and seeing that it's already all been prophesied out early on, and that God decided that the timing would be perfect, of which day Jesus said, I need this donkey, I need this colt, we're going in at this moment. Jesus has got something to say in time that is weighty, that is heavy, that should be immediately be getting everybody's attention about who he is. Because if you ask people today who he is, they don't know him. And what's sad is in the first century when they didn't have all of these things distracting people, they still didn't know him. And this is the major plague of our problem in society today as it was then. We don't know him. Even though God has made it abundantly clear, not just in his word, but in time itself about who his son would be, he set aside a day to where the Jewish people should recognize his arrival. Look with me back at Matthew 21. And let's take this apart so that we understand it. Verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. If you're familiar at all, or if you've got maps in the back of your Bible that show you what Jerusalem looks like, You're looking at the city, it's off to the east. You'll find something called the Kidron Valley that's right there. And then slightly up a slope is the Mount of Olives, and there was two towns out there. One was Bethany, and the other one was Bethpage. Bethany is the place where Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Bethpage was a small town that they don't even know for sure how it was located out there or where exactly more because it's been gone for so long. But the idea is is that he's there waiting to come in. Now, one thing that we would notice if we go through and we look at the kings of Israel, Is that at one point in order to step into the kingship again after it had been taken from him momentarily by his son Absalom, David in the same way came from the same direction into the city in order to reclaim his kingship. Another situation would be the fact that he's asking for these animals, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them To me, it's very interesting because the King Jehu, in the same way, decided that he would ride a donkey upon coats in order to come in for his coronation service. So all of this mirrors how God has set up circumstances in history in the past to recognize the idea of a king, a king, a king. Now, with that in mind, take your finger again, place it here. That little piece of paper is going to come in handy, I tell you what. And turn back with me if you would to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, if you're familiar with this, Jacob is dying. And he is going to pass away, and he's got 12 sons that he's dealing with. And he begins to pronounce blessings and cursings on them for not just what their lives would represent, but also what the fulfillment and outgrowth of each tribe would fulfill of the 12 tribes. The first three boys had forfeited their inheritance. The firstborn very much was due it, Reuben, the firstborn, in verse 3, but he forfeited that because he had slept with his father's wife. That's something that you shouldn't do, just to make it clear. Okay? The next two boys, Simeon and Levi, are mentioned in verse 5, they were actually forfeiting of that inheritance because if it didn't go the firstborn, it trickled down. But they was removed from them as well because a group of guys had come in and this prince, this famous pagan prince, had raped their sister. And so they decided they would take vengeance and they ended up killing all the men of those people. They were not to take vengeance in their hand. Why? Because vengeance belonged to God and what they did was not right. And so in doing that, the inheritance subsided. Until you come to verse 8. Look what it says. Judah. Judah means praise. This is the fourth of the tribe of Israel. And this is the line of which Jesus comes from. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a lion's cub. That actually signifies nobility is what it does. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. In other words, you'll have success on wars and conquest. He couches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares, rouse him up. Verse 10, watch this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. If you hold a scepter, you are a king. That's what it means. Notice what else it says. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And what was interesting about that is the ruler's staff was often commissioned for somebody who was a giver of law. Is God the giver of law? Yes, is Jesus God? Yes, let's put it together. It's real simple. Notice it says here, until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now watch this, verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. In other words, it's the idea of abundance and having the most expensive items at his disposal. But notice the mention of the colt in the full Verse 12, his eyes are full from wine. That doesn't mean he was drunk. Uh, it's the idea that since wine is red, his eyes are a flame of fire. We see this in Revelation 1. And his teeth are white from milk, able to take of the best. All of this refers to the royalty that will come down from this line. So when you see a mention here in the very first book of the Old Testament, of the idea of from this line is going to come a succession of kings. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that, even down to the point of how he decided to come into the city. If you would, turn back with me to 21. Look at verses 3-5. through If anyone says anything to you about coming to get the donkey or the colt, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm hanging out outside of my house and I've got my donkey and my foal with me, and somebody comes up and asks for it, I'm not immediately going to give it to them. The Lord has need of it. My response is going to be, so? So? It's not his. So why would we want to pay attention to this? Notice that this shows God's sovereignty over things. Notice it shows the foresight of preparation. Notice that it shows his omniscience, his all-knowing of the entire event. Notice that he understands exactly how people will respond. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight. And everything has been set in place divinely in order to communicate this to Israel. I don't know about you, but, but think with me for a moment. If the king were to come into Portage, how would they enter? What's that? What? In a car? At least in a car. At least in an American-made car, right? <laughs> Amen! Somebody just got saved. Good grief. How would he come in? I remember not too long ago, uh, Trump was giving a... Um, a speech at a steel factory that was located not too far from where we lived when we were in southern Indiana, and I drove past the airport there in Evansville, and there said Air Force One. That thing is huge. Good grief. There is no reason why it should stay in the sky. It is a massive, massive vehicle. I thought, man, that's a way to arrive. You could see that from two miles away. That's insane. That's, that's a way you enter a city. You would enter in some sort of grand pomp, wouldn't you? Wouldn't there be at least be some, str- if I were a king entering to the city, I would at least want some confetti and streamers going on, okay? But it's got to be something that's grand. Notice this isn't Jesus' approach. Why? Is he the king? Should he not enter in a grand way? Why does he choose to sit down on a colt and come into this city? What's that? Fulfilled prophecy is a big deal. He's working it exactly according to God's word. But number two, let me ask you this. Whose opinion is Jesus worried about? Maybe God's, yes. But really, no one's, is he? Jesus isn't out to impress. Jesus isn't trying to milk your affections. Everybody see that? Jesus isn't saying, you know what, I know that not really according to the law that we have established, but I'm going to kind of fudge this and work with you for a little bit. That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't worried about the perspectives of others. Jesus is worried about presenting himself as who he truly is. And it's the fact that he decided to enter a city as their king, presenting himself as their king in a humble way that is absolutely mind-blowing to me. He could have done it in so many other ways in order to grab attention. I mean, it already stirred everybody up. We know that from reading this passage. But what's amazing, he didn't come in on some crazy white stallion. He's not got a sword above his head. He's not waving a flag in another. He doesn't have all kinds of people with, I don't know, finger symbols and tambourines or whatever they would do at that moment announcing his coming. He's simply coming in on the back of a small cult saying, here I am. This is me. Because he has nothing to prove. He is who he is and the truth is what it is and that's it. And I think that's something that we probably need to pay more attention to today. Notice as it moves on, verse 4, this took place to, everybody see the word? Fulfill. This is the great thing about Matthew is Matthew actually puts the dots from the Old Testament together with you. And notice that there's two quotations here to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. In verse 5, the first two lines, and notice that you should have it in a staggered line format where it's not a run-on sentence. It'll be line, 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 okay? And the reason is, is because it's written in poetic prophecy. The first is from Isaiah 62, verse 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold! Your king is coming. Two things. Number one, Zion. Anytime that the word Zion is used, it is actually God's name of the affection that he has for the city of Jerusalem and particularly the people of it. There's something about God's heart that he wants to unfold. It's almost like he's opening up his chest and saying, look how I really feel about these people. And so it's a term of endearment. It's a term of of mushy-gushy. We can even say that about God because God gets that way about people. It's okay. It doesn't make him less masculine or anything like that. But notice it also says, Behold, your king is coming to you. All they had to do was know the Scripture and recognize that not maybe what we expected about his entrance, but it was the entrance of a king nonetheless. Your king is here. He's shown up. The only thing that's left is to ask, what will your response be to his arrival? The second part comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Or if you were to go to Zechariah chapter 9, you would see that it says, Of a donkey. Now here's what I'm going to ask. Dave, if you wouldn't mind. Bring Zechariah 8 up real quick, verses 1 and 2, if you want to jot them down. Notice what it says. In the word of Yahweh of hosts came saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Everybody see that language? This is why when the Israelites were involved in idolatry, God equated it to adultery. Because this is the heart of a jilted lover. Somebody who's been messed over for a one-night stand. That's what this is. Because he is passionately in love with these people. Guys, in Christ, this is how he is towards you and me. He is a passionate lover towards us. Not in a sexual way. Don't get dirty with it but in a way that says I want nothing but the best for you and I've done everything to provide the best for you. Simply believe me. It's all yours. Isn't that what we've been learning in Ephesians? It's all yours. It's all yours. Every spiritual blessing. It's all yours. This is how much he loves people. How about the next one? Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Interesting verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. There's a word again. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Does everybody see the parallels? Yes? Who's awake? Making sure. Okay. Stick with me here, man. Zion and Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with what? Salvation. He's here to deliver you. I don't know about you, but I've been looking at the news lately. I need some delivering. I need some rescuing. I am praying your kingdom come, your will be done. I am. I'm ready to go. Thank you. Notice that he's humble and he's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Now here's what's interesting. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river, the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Does that sound like when he's coming into Jerusalem there? Verse 10 does not. And this is one of the interesting things about prophecy. Is anytime you're reading prophecy, you will find things about his first coming and his second coming will be side by side. And it is our jobs as astute Bible readers to understand what exactly is going on. Now, here's the thing. If both of those events run together, why did they not both happen together? Don't answer. Hold on to it in your mind and we'll answer it here in just a second. Look with me here at at verse 6. Of Matthew 21. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And he brought the donkey and the colt. And he laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. Would you put your coat in the road for Jesus? Hopefully we'd say yes. And you're like, I don't know, man. This is London fog. I'm not for sure. It's your king. Yeah, throw your shirt out there too. They spread their coats on the road. And others were cutting branches, palm branches of course, we know that from John 12, 13. From the trees and spreading them on the road, the crowds were going ahead of him. And those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna to Jesus! Hosanna to the son of David. Now real quick, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna is actually translated from the Aramaic. It's not Hebrew, and it's not really Greek. It's translated from the Aramaic. There's a little bit in Ezra and a little bit in Daniel that's made up of Aramaic in the Old Testament. But originally, this idea meant, Lord, save me! Help! It was a cry of rescue. But it becomes so used of God and the way that he could work and what his will was for the Jewish people that they took the save me help plea, and they actually turned it into praise. Praise God! is what it means. That's why when you see at the end of this, when it says there, Hosanna in the highest, it literally means, praise be unto the Most High God, the Creator of all things. So originally it's a cry out for salvation. I'm sure that has a bearing here. But it's the idea that we're worshiping. We're worshiping the Most High. Why? Because the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of Jesus the Lord why should this matter again pull out your handy dandy paper put it here and turn with me to 2nd Samuel the Old Testament now this one is easier because it's after yeah see you awake people got it going on it's great 2nd Samuel 7 2nd Samuel 7 verses 8 through 17 you need to know Because it's the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant unconditional that God makes with David and his lineage that rests upon nothing but God's faithfulness to see it happen. And there's much in there we could read, but because of the interest of time, we're not going to. I just want you to see one verse so we can see how it plays out. Verse 16. He's making it with David. And he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me how long? You're killing me small. Say it correctly. Forever. Exactly. Some of you have seen the sandlot. Good. And notice what it says. Your throne shall be established forever. Look, your house, your kingdom, your throne. Is the picture getting painted pretty clearly? It'll be established forever. There will be no ending to it, when it is established. Now, take that and turn with me to Luke, beyond your little piece of paper. Luke chapter 1, and you Wednesday night folks, you're going to get a double dose of this, it's okay. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. This is the situation where Gabriel, the same angel who was talking to Daniel in Daniel 9, shows up to Mary and says, Guess what? You're having a kid. And she said, what? Right? Actually, she handled it way better than that. But there's this pronouncement about the arrival of the Messiah, the fact that she was going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And look what takes place here. Where are we at? Verse 30. Let's start there. Good. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. That word means grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua is his name. It means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh is your rescuer, your deliverer. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, watch this, the throne of his father David. Why? Because through the lineage of Judah would then come about Abraham, of which promises and blessings were given, of which would come about King David, of which down the line would then come in actually two ways, through a royal line and through the bloodline, would meet in the person of Jesus Christ. Anybody could go to the temple, which was first dot firstcenturyancestry.com, and pull it all out and see the family tree unveiling itself. And they could have pinpointed it with their finger and said, Jesus of Nazareth is the rightful king who should be sitting on the throne of Israel. Anybody could have seen it. Now, notice what else he says. Not just the throne of David, but look what it says in verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob how long? Forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Question. Is he reigning now? No. He's not. Don't fall into the trap. Well, wait a second. He's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He died for our sins. Of course he's the king. Of course he reigned forever. It's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that Satan is the God of this present age. I don't even need the Bible to figure that out right now. Good grief. It says that Jesus in his resurrection has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Why the right hand? Because he's the batter on deck. I'm really excited about him getting to the plate because I have a feeling he's going to knock it out of the stadium. We all got our excuses. It's okay. We're what, that. Isn't that what you're waiting for? I mean, think about, out of all the things that we anticipate in life, what are we waiting for? I am waiting for Jesus to have that shout, to blow that trumpet, and all of a sudden I've blinked my eyes and I see him face to face. And I love it because I know, and hopefully I'll be able to take my phone with me, that I can set a seven-year time clock to know in seven years we're coming back to the earth and he is dealing with all this horse mess and he is going to set it all right and he is going to establish his kingdom. And it is going to be nothing but joy, peace, and righteousness forever because he's proven one thing to us in all of history. We don't have what it takes to establish the beauty that God demands. We don't have what it takes to bring about the peace. We are a warmongering people who love death and who hate people. Everything in our society points to that. Don't act like it doesn't. Please don't act like it doesn't. If you do, you've got your head in the sand of what's going on in this world. Currency is getting ready to be corrupted. Our food is getting corrupted. Human rights are getting corrupted. There are other people that are making decisions about our futures. And if all my hope was here, I would be scared to death. But I'm not because I have a king. And I have a king who's promised to come. He's given his word on this. He fulfilled everything in order to show his own people that this is who he is. So when we see this idea of the son of David... It's because it's going back to a promise that God made a contract with David and his entire lineage. I will do this. It will happen. Now, if Jesus is not reigning now on the throne, of which he's not, and the kingdom is not here in any form now, it is not. It is a literal future kingdom in relation to the city of Jerusalem that is waiting to come, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. That's a real chair, guys. And he will sit down there. You know what that tells me? If he didn't fulfill it the first time he came, his promise to come again tells me that that's when it's going to get fulfilled. That's when he will be triumphant over all of his enemies. It actually says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Anybody ever seen grapes getting stomped into wine? Feet are dirty. Let's give it a pass. But I'm going to say that Jesus' feet are clean. And he can do it perfectly. That's the imagery. Is coming in and taking this entire satanic regime and ashes. Done. They don't have a word. I just didn't know. What? You knew. You knew. You didn't care. You didn't believe it. You scoffed at it. You mocked it. You persecuted His people. You locked them away. You took away their Bibles. You destroyed their families. Let's not play here. The church is getting ready to come up on some of its most important times. And it is our seeking His face for the rapture to take place that will rescue us from the time of wrath. And that is our job. Let's finish this out. Verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet. I love that. Because that has all kinds of Old Testament connotations. This is the guy who is the representative of God, who's telling us all the things that will happen before they happen. And oh, by the way, he has all the miracles in order to prove it to you. That's who this is. His name is Jesus. He's from a region of Galilee, from a little town called Nazareth that nobody thinks much of at a moment. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when we think of Palm Sunday, look at all this cool stuff, right? And it gives us some joy because it's the entrance of a king, and that's fantastic. Do you realize that this hope in these 11 verses is the same hope that has been standing still in time since this moment? He entered on April sixth, 32 A.D. And then all of a sudden Messiah was cut off and He had nothing. What does it mean He had nothing? He didn't take possession of the kingdom because His people rejected their king instead of humbling themselves and receiving his royalty so that everything would be prosperous and he could deal with sin and unrighteousness once and for all and establish a just society. They said, no, I love my sin. I don't want you to have anything to do with it. And they smacked his hands away from taking possession over their eternities. And they killed him. Let's see it. Look over, Matthew 23. And this is where we'll end. All of this is so full of action. In Matthew 23, Jesus takes the gloves off and really starts handing it to the scribes and Pharisees who have done nothing but ridicule His earthly ministry when they knew the Scriptures better than anybody. Remember, it's not just about how much you know about God, it's the fact that your heart is sensitive to receive that knowledge and act upon it. Look at verse 37, here's what Jesus says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. That's how you guys respond to truth is what he's saying. Every time I sent you somebody to shed light, you beat it into darkness. Think of what a stoning is. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Market church. And you were... Normally I would let that go, but we need to be unified on this. You were not what? Unwilling. Or sorry, you were unwilling. Forgive me, I phrased that wrong. I wanted to do this. I wanted you to come to me. You ever done that with a child? Come to me, come on. Come to daddy. Why? Because you want nothing more than to pick that child up and embrace them. And this is the heart of God towards his people. And what are they saying? No. I don't want anything to do with you becoming my king. He even gives beautiful imagery. He actually goes in the realm of female to describe this. Not that that's revolutionary, but he's a guy. It's like whenever a hen wants to shelter. It's chicks. Come under here. Stay here. I will keep you safe. I will take care of you. No harm will come to you. And they said, no. And notice where it all springs from. You were unwilling. Your will said no. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's why Israel is in the shape that it is now. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. In other words, until the second coming of Christ, they will not see their Messiah again. Now, why is this moment in time significant? God has used prophecy, God has used exact time to the day in order to establish his son as king. He came in the exact same way that kings of the Old Testament ushered themselves into Jerusalem in order to be accepted. People are crying out in the city praises to god and they're likening him to the son of david which brings in a whole other idea of god's promises to solidify who jesus is as the promised fulfillment of this kingdom even an angel took the time to tell his earthly mother this is what's going to happen with your son this is who he is what should bother us the most is that people today are still unwilling They still don't want him. I've said this to you guys before, but think about it real quick. What has Jesus ever done that's so bad that people would say, nope, keep him away from me? Was he mean? No. Is he here to arrest you? No. Is he here to take all your stuff away? No. Is he here to tax you? No. No. He's not here to do any of that stuff, is he? What did he promise? I'll save you. Why? Look around, guys. Let's get sober for one moment. There's no salvation anywhere else. No one here is saving us. No one out there is saving us. No one in the headlines is saving us. No one on the movie screen is saving us. No one that's passing bloated bills is saving us. No one who is promising to do their best is saving us. We're having more violence than we've ever had in our lives. We're having more tolerance of evil than we've ever had in our lives. We've had more of things that are absolutely a violation of God. Being considered to be acceptable, and you better agree with that. Or you are in trouble. We're moving to destitute times. Understand this. There's a secret behind it all. And you need to know this. It's the fact that if you're a Christian, you don't live here. This is the way those citizens work. I'm a citizen of another place. I'm a foreigner here. I'm passing by. I'm nothing short of an infidel. I kind of like that. I'm okay with it. Because they hated Jesus because he said what you guys are doing is evil. Guess what? They're going to hate me too. They're going to hate you too. I'm here to tell you this with all of the confidence I could possibly give you in the insignificant person that I am. It's okay if the world doesn't like you. Look to your king. He is coming. He is bringing his kingdom. And though they crucified him the first time and he did provide salvation for the world... The second time He doesn't come as Savior, He comes as Judge. And this is the time to deal with it. This is the time to ask the question, am I willing to accept Christ? Or am I unwilling to accept Christ? Guess what? He's done all the work you need before the Father, and He's the one who offers that gift of Himself to you to give you eternal life. The only thing left is for you to make the decision of whether or not you will believe or won't believe Him. But understand this, whatever decision is made, the consequences and or rewards will come out of that decision because each person is personally responsible to respond to the Savior. He died for everyone, but that doesn't mean that everybody everybody will respond favorably. If you are a believer in Christ, guess what? You have nothing but hope. You just told me how bad the world is. That made me sad. It's okay. We have coffee. And the Bible says a lot of really good things. If it just ended there, we'd have every reason to be sad. It doesn't. We end in triumph. We end in victory. We end in Jesus because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And there ain't any safer place to be in this crazy world than being in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we give you all the glory And we ask that these things would be fresh on our minds, significant in our hearts, challenging our daily decisions, but lifting up our hopes. Recognizing that when You come again, You will come on a white horse. You will come with a sword that protrudes from Your mouth of truth and righteousness. You will come and You will deal with satanic forces. You will deal with unjust opposition. You will deal with unrighteousness that we see around us. Every one of us in this room has got to have a fiber in our being where we look at it and say, this world is not right. It is not right. You are the only cure. You are the only fix. You are the only answer. And so Lord, we praise You for giving us an answer at all. We don't deserve it. I don't believe that you were obligated to do so, but because you are full of compassion and mercy, you have given it personally out of your own stock, out of your own son to set us free and give us an eternal hope. Lord, all that you've done to orchestrate these events and to set them up in history, may those be embraced upon our minds and our hearts of the links you're willing to go to show how much you love us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. It's in your name we pray it. Amen.